Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. If you're here today and you have given up on Christianity, or maybe you're about to give up on Christianity because of something in the Bible, if you're someone who says, Brett, I'm still in, but I'm really only in because my wife drags me to church and she makes me come, uh, or you'd say, I, I'm only here because um, I, my husband is still faithful and I want to support him, but um, Brett, I, I'm not too sure. If, if you would say, Brett, honestly, I think my hand may be on the door. I think I may be ready to, to make my escape. I don't know how much longer I'm going to do this, and I'm kind of leaning that way, and it's because of something in the Bible, or it's because somebody told me something about the Bible, and it's kind of challenged my faith. See, here's the thing. When I talk to people who've left the faith, when I talk to people who say, yeah, I used to do that Jesus thing, or I used to go to church, and they usually say it in a condescending way, like I'm an idiot because I'm still doing that, and they've been enlightened somehow. What I discover when I start asking some questions is this. They didn't do a study and, and do a deep dive on the resurrection and say, did Jesus raise from the dead? No, he didn't. I'm leaving. That's not what happens. That's not, they, didn't, they didn't, you know, go all in and, and do this, you know, year-long search and try to figure out if the resurrection is true or not. Typically, it starts with bad habits, and we, you get out of the habit of doing certain things, and then you're not going to church, and and then you don't get encouraged by people, and after a while, you just kind of forget about the whole thing. You don't read your Bible anymore. You don't see any of the church people, and the next thing you know, you look up, and you're, you, you, know, you would say, well, I'm really not a person of faith anymore. That's generally what happens with people. It's not that they made some conscious decision that the resurrection is inaccurate or didn't happen. That, that's not where they go with it. So if you're here today, and you're thinking, man, Brett, my... my because of what someone has said to me or because of what someone has said about the Bible, I may kind of have my hand on the door and be ready to kind of lean out the door. I want you to know that you do not have to leave. And for the next three weeks, I'm going to talk to you about why that is. Keep this in mind. Over the next three weeks, as we move throughout this series, Jesus' most devout followers never owned a Bible. They never read a Bible, couldn't have read a Bible, even if there was a Bible. Most of them were uneducated and couldn't read because that's just the way it was. And yet these men and women turned the world upside down and started a wildfire that burns to this day. That's what this series is about, is what, what caused that, what, what has brought us to this point. They, they never held a Bible, there was no Bible, there was no tabiblia, until the, 14, uh, until the 4th century A.D. So what happened? What did they believe? What did they know and what, that, that we don't know? And why is it that people are so quickly persuaded to walk away from Christianity because of a book that didn't exist when Christianity began? Just something to think about. One of the things that we will explore in this series is how we talk about the Bible. And we're also going to consider what we point to as the foundation of faith, which means for most of us, that's unfortunately what we point to is the Bible. Consequently, as a pastor, I have become more and more aware of how I talk about the Bible in conversations and sermons. And to be honest with you, I have changed the way I talk about the Bible when I'm having those conversations. I have not changed what I believe I haven't really announced it, I haven't really talked a whole lot about it, but I, I just, I talk about it differently now, and in doing so, I think that it has helped me to remove obstacles 
for certain people who are struggling with trying to find faith and those that are on the outside that are looking in and they think to themselves, you know, I'd like to be a part of that. I'd like to be included. I'd like to be able to give, you know, mental assent, but I'm, I've just got some things that I'm struggling with. And so these changes that I've made, I've found help me to talk to people a little easier and a little better. There is a YouTube video of a man who is considered one of the new atheists. After 9-11, this group of, of men and some women came along, and they have kind of come to be known as the new atheists. And, and they said, hey, the problem isn't Islam, because if you remember when 9-11 happened, we blamed all of it on Islam. And they said, the problem isn't necessarily Islam, the problem is religion. The root of most evil is, is religion. And these guys have sold millions of books with that message. They have, they have lectured across college campuses, numbering in the thousands on this particular subject. And one of these guys did a YouTube video where he basically dismantles the Old Testament. And they undermine everything that would be considered a major tenet of Christianity. And even though the message wasn't new, because people have been trying to do that forever, but combined with 9-11, combined with the anti-Christian sentiment that is growing and continues to grow, combined with just an anti-religious sentiment altogether in our present culture, and it continues to grow, and combined with the internet, you soon realized that the Achilles heel of our modern version of faith was about to be exploited <clears throat> in a way that threatened the faith of the next generation. Now, there have been atheists around forever. That is nothing new. Uh, there have been some really smart people who've written some really good books, asking really good questions about the Bible. That, that's been the case for a long, long time. But when all of the things that I just talked about come together, it becomes like a perfect storm. Because for a long time, our modern version of Christianity has had an Achilles heel. And it hadn't really been exploited for the most part because most people had a respect for the Bible, and even those that didn't have a respect for the Bible, when they talked about it, didn't talk about it disrespectfully. But that has changed. Consequently, what has been true for a very, very long time is about to be exposed, and the real concern isn't for you or for the people who are in our churches today. You're in. You're pretty solid. You came for a reason. I mean, for crying out loud, it's raining outside. You got up, got dressed, drove through the rain to come be at church this morning. So I'm kind of preaching to the choir, I know. But my main concern is for the next generation. The danger is that we could send them out into the world with a Sunday school faith that will not stand up against the onslaught that is becoming more and more prevalent in our country. The good news is this. There, there is an answer. There are some things that you can do. There are some things that you can say because the Achilles heel that hasn't been exploited until now is a misconception um, basically of a very important Reformation concept. Now, I'm not gonna delve into 16th century Reformation theology for you this morning. A, I couldn't do that. B, you don't want me to do that. But the, the, I wanna touch on one thing, uh, a concept that has been distorted and the concept is the concept of sola scriptura. 
sola scriptura, which grew out of uh, 16th century Reformation theology. Real quick, in the 16th century, there was a Reformation, and the Reformation leaders basically rescued Christianity from a tradition-driven, word-of-the-church-driven version of Christianity. And they said, hey, no, um, the Pope isn't the final authority, the church isn't the final authority, tradition isn't the final authority, Scripture alone, sola scriptura, Scripture alone will be the final authority for the church. But over time, the idea of sola scriptura, the idea that Scripture alone is the authority, has been taken to mean that the Scripture, or today the way you hear it, that the Bible is actually the foundation of our faith. And here's the rub. There is a very big difference between something that is seen as an authority to the to, to live by and something that is considered to be the foundation of your faith. But over time, those two ideas have merged. And it's nobody's fault, it's just the way it is, and it's the way we've kind of settled into talking about the Bible. So many of you, myself included, were raised to believe that the foundation of our faith is the Bible. And that as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. And if, if all of it is not true, then none of it can be true, and it becomes a house of cards. And you've probably experienced the same thing that I have experienced in my life when I saw that there was going to be this special on 60 Minutes that was going to take shots at Scripture and how it, it didn't hold up, and it, it, you know, there were holes in it, and you can't believe this, and what about this, and there's a contradiction. Or there was a book on a shelf that that just by the title you could tell was going to challenge everything that you believed about Scripture and about God, and you just think to yourself, ooh, I don't want to read that because I don't know how to answer that. And so we just politely look the other way and we act like it don't, doesn't exist. You ever done that? Because you weren't quite sure what you would say if somebody pulled out that one card that you couldn't explain and the whole house of cards would come tumbling down. Now most of you in here are probably going to be just fine. But I'm not so sure about the next generation unless we help them to step back and put their feet on a more solid foundation as it relates to faith. Because if Genesis isn't true, then the Bible isn't true. And right now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Brett, what are you saying? What are you saying? Are you saying Genesis isn't true? No, that's not what I'm saying. Make sure this morning that you listen very carefully to what I'm going to say. Do not put words in my mouth and do not misunderstand what I'm trying to get you to understand this morning. I have great confidence in Scripture. I would not be here if I did not have great confidence in Scripture. But if all of the Bible isn't true, then you can't say that the Bible is true. And right now you're just thinking, Brett, stop it. Just hang with me. Okay. If all of the Bible isn't true, then you can't say that the Bible is true, and why should I depend on it as a source for anything? And the new atheists, these guys who are really intelligent men, they're not evil, they're not bad men. We, we, you know, people who disagree with us, we come to view as the enemy. They're not the enemy. If anything, we should be praying for these guys. We should be listening to them to try to figure out what would I say? How, how could I love a person like that? How could I show them the love of Christ? But what happens is they scare us, and when people scare us, when things scare us that we don't understand, we attack. 
And we've got to quit doing that. They just have a different worldview than you and me. And they're very good writers and communicators. And they are very, very persuasive. One of them is a man named Sam Harris. Sam said this, we should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. Now, he's an atheist. But I don't care if he's an atheist or not. Just because he's an atheist doesn't mean he can't speak truth. And this statement is true. We should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. That's a great statement for anybody. We should all be students. He's an atheist. He has a different way of viewing the world, but he's not a bad man. He's not evil. He just thinks differently than we do. And what these new atheists have begun to do, very effectively, I might add, they have attacked the credibility and the morality of Scripture. The credibility. You can't believe it. There are all kinds of problems with it. That's what they do. There's all kinds of problems with Scripture. I can't believe you would place your faith in something that has that many problems in it. So that's the credibility issue. And then there's the morality issue. And that is the message that is sweeping across college campuses right now. And that message is, it's not just that religion is wrong. Religion is bad. The God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. And all it takes is a little bit of that, and your faith becomes this house of cards, and it all starts tumbling down, at least for some. So for the next three weeks, we're going to take a look at what served as the foundation of faith for the first century church. And we're going to take a look at their view and how they began to view the Old Testament as well. See, I think that we should take our cues about faith from the ones who were there. I think we should look at them and how did they view the Old Testament? How did the men and women who who were in the first century, who were closest to the action, the first century Jesus followers, how did they approach it? What was most important to them? What did they stand on? And when we take our cue from them, and when our grandkids and our kids take our cue from them, you end up with the endurable, defensible, unassailable version of faith, which was the original version. So you ready? That was the introduction. Are you ready? (laughs) Strap in. Here we go. We pick up our story where we left off last week, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And then he ascended to be with God, and the, the, the guys that are left over, the disciples, are standing around, and they look at each other, and it's basically, what's next? Okay, okay, now what? He's gone, so now what do we do? And so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. We're familiar with those. And then you come to Acts, and what you may or may not know is that Acts is also written by Luke. Not only did he author the the book of Luke, he authored the book of Acts. And in in the book of Acts, Luke basically documents the next 30 years of what happens in the early church following the resurrection. And just about the very first thing that the disciples did after Jesus rose from the dead is they got together and they decided, we need to replace Judas. Now Judas has betrayed Christ and them, and then he's gone off and he's hung himself, And they decided that they needed to have 12 disciples, not 11. And so Luke said that they thoroughly investigated, you know, Luke would say, I've thoroughly investigated all this stuff, and I've tried to write it down and be as faithful as I can to the narrative. He he investigated, Luke was a doctor, very attentive to detail. And so, and you'll see a little bit of that here in a minute. But he said, I've tried to document all this stuff, and Luke says, here's how the conversation went when they decided to replace 
Judas. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord was living among us. That's important. And one of the things that you kind of got to get out of your head is something that you probably thought as you grew up, probably think it to this day, it's, it's hard for me to get past this, but we have this idea that Jesus walked around on the earth and that these 12 guys followed behind him and that that's all there were, just Jesus and the 12. But the fact of the matter is that more times than not, I'm not suggesting that this was the case all the time, every second of the day, but a lot of the time there was probably a bunch of other people that were following Jesus as well. So it's not just the 12, there was a pretty significant group of people that you may have found around Jesus at any given time. It's one of the reasons that you, you see him trying to draw away like he does because it's draining when you have to do that all the time. And so we just got to get past this idea that it was just the 12. So they say, we, we, you know, the, the 12 say, we got to find a replacement for Judas. Verse 22, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. In other words, we need an eyewitness to the story. But I want you to notice what was most important in terms of this person's qualifications. Verse 22, the second part. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They weren't looking for a gifted speaker. They weren't looking for somebody who had mastered the scriptures. They weren't looking for somebody with wonderful personality or who was really good looking. They, they were looking for somebody who would be an eyewitness with them to the resurrection. And so they elect a guy named Matthias, and then everything shifts into high gear. Seven weeks after the resurrection, not seven years, not 70 years, seven weeks after the resurrection, not so long ago that people would have forgotten what happened in Jerusalem just seven weeks prior. Seven weeks after the resurrection, the city of Jerusalem is once again filled to the brim. It's full of people. There are visitors from all around the region because there was another festival. A massive wind comes rushing through the city. The disciples are all gathered together. And I'm not just talking about the 12. I'm talking about, you know, maybe 100 people or more. And it's kind of this core group of faith. And, and this wind comes and it makes this huge disturbance in the middle of the city. And God is in it. And these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they start to go out into the city, and they begin to preach about Jesus. Now, you've got to understand, after the resurrection, these people, after the crucifixion, these people, they're cowering in fear. They're afraid. They don't know what to think. They're certainly not preaching to anybody. They don't even want to be seen in public. But all of a sudden, this wind comes through, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's just what I'm going to tell you. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, it changes you. You are suddenly willing to do things you might never have been willing to do before. You might think to yourself, you know what, I don't know if I'd ever be a missionary, but I promise you if the Holy Spirit comes into your life and says, hey, I want you to be a missionary, you're going to be a missionary. The Holy Spirit just changes things. Luke continues, Acts chapter 2, verse 6. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together. Now keep in mind, this is festival time. City's full of people. It's wall-to-wall -wall people. All the restaurants are full. All the hotels are full. You know, it's shoulder to shoulder. A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. 
So all these people from all over the region, mainly different dialects, sometimes completely different languages altogether. Verse 7 says, they were utterly amazed. They asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? So they're going, wait a minute, you're clearly a Galilean, but when you speak, I hear it in my language. This is miraculous. Verse 8, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Verse 13, a little further down. Some, however, made fun of them and said, ah, they're just drunk. They're just, you know, woo, had a little bit too much. I love the detail. You know why that's in there? Because that's the way it happened. And Luke said, well, that's part of the story. They thought they were drunk. I'm going to put that part in there. Now, this is amazing. By this time, Peter is the leader of the local church. Just a few weeks earlier, Peter has denied Jesus three times. And now, he's leading the thing. Jesus got arrested. Peter denies Jesus. He, he, you know, he, he goes into this funk. He's cowering in fear. He's scared to death. Now, listen to me. For those of you who have messed up, For those of you that think that I've made choices that I'll never be able to recover from or I've done things that I'm never going to be able to live down, for those of you that think it's too late for you to ever be used by God, this is great news for you. Peter denied Jesus three times and then Jesus put him in charge of the whole deal. That's great news for me and you. Doesn't matter what you've done, God sees potential in you. God knows that you can do something else and he will redeem you He will give you opportunity. So Peter is going to go up, and he's going to preach a sermon, and here's the sermon, okay? All these people are around, this commotion. um, They're hearing these different languages. They can't explain it, and everybody's curious. And so Peter sees this as an opportunity, and he, he says he stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say, and then I think the crowd may have laughed at what he says next. I think this might have been kind of like a funny. These people are not drunk. As you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. I think this is Peter like, (laughs) you know as well as I do these guys aren't drunk. Nobody gets drunk at nine in the morning. Come on. I think that this is... This is a preaching tool. I do this from time to time. If I think think my sermon is going to be really serious and have nothing funny in it, I'm not above coming out here and telling you a joke just to put a smile on your face, right? Like, we've got to loosen them up a little bit. So I think that's what Peter's doing. But he's about to start preaching. Now he's going to get to the point. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Peter's like, I don't have to convince you of this stuff. You were here. You saw him. You you saw him. You you heard him teach. You you were around. You saw the people that that were drawn to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Many of these people were in the city just seven weeks earlier, and they saw Jesus crucified. And they went home. They thought that was the end of it. You know, I saw this guy die on a cross. Okay, that's it. Let's go home. I guess he's not who we thought he was. And, and you, wouldn't, you wouldn't fault any of these people for saying, whatever, I mean, did we miss something? Peter, you're doing all this preaching. I mean, I thought that guy was dead. What are you, you're, you're talking about this Jesus guy? I mean, what happened? 
Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. In other words, some of you who are in this crowd were responsible for Jesus being put on that cross. He's really getting after him. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he references a psalm of David. And I think what he's doing is he's saying, listen, as Jews, we should have seen this coming. I mean, David wrote about this. We, we should have known that this was all gonna happen. David told us it was coming. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. That's a big phrase. You're gonna hear that over and over again for the rest of the New Testament. We were all witnesses of it. Now what do you suppose was the reaction of this group of people after this message of Jesus? I mean, this is, Peter is preaching revival quality preaching, okay? <laughs> He's pinned his ears back. He's really letting them have it with both barrels. How do you think that they're going to respond? This is what happens, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Now, the word repent means to change your mind, okay? I, I teach repent as I'm walking one direction and I change my mind and I start walking in the other direction. And, and I'm not suggesting that the people that are hearing this message are, are not sinners, that's not what I'm suggesting, but I'm, and we use repentance as if, you know, repent of your sins, and that's probably, they needed to do that too, but I think even in a, a bigger capacity for them, I think what, what, what Peter's really trying to say is you need to change your mind about who Jesus is. And then once you've changed your mind about who Jesus is, then you need to publicly identify with him and you need to be baptized. When we show you baptisms, that's what's happening. They're publicly identifying their life with Jesus. And Acts goes on to tell us that many, many people that day were baptized into the waters of baptism. And here's the point. The very first sermon that was ever preached was not preached about what Jesus taught. The very first sermon that was ever preached after the resurrection was a sermon about the resurrection. Now let me set a new scene. Let's leave that behind, okay? That crowd and all these people got baptized. New, there's a new scene. It's interesting because at the crucifixion, these guys are hiding. These guys are scared to death. Now after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit has come. These guys are walking around in public. They're preaching. They've got all this boldness. They're walking around the city of Jerusalem unafraid. Peter and John decide to go up to the Temple Mount to pray. And I would just tell you that this is a place that they should have stayed away from. I mean, if you're somebody that hung out with Jesus, and it's just seven weeks after the crucifixion, that you would show your face around the temple is probably not a great idea. But that's where they go. And there is a man just outside the temple gates, as they walked by, this man had been there every day of his life because he had been born lame. He couldn't walk. And people would walk past this man and he would hold out his hand or a cup and he would beg for alms. And all these people that always went to the temple and even when they, the ones from out of town, when they would come in 
every couple of several weeks and go for whatever festival it was. They had all passed by this guy. They had all seen him. Everybody knew who he was. He wasn't, he wasn't new to anybody. And there's this man, he's begging for alms, and Peter and John, they don't have any money. And I've sung this little song to you. There's a song that I could sing, and you'd be thankful that I'm not going to sing it to you, but Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He stuck out his palm and asked for an alm, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And then the, the song goes on to say, he went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God. So he stands up now, and he's going to follow these guys inside to the temple. Well, the people who know this guy, they see that he's walking around. Everybody knows, hey, this is, that's the lame guy. What's he, he's walking. What happened to him? How did that happen? A crowd starts to assemble. Peter and John are there. This lame man is there. And, and, and right there on the Temple Mount, yards away from the Holy of Holies, the courtyard is filled with people pulling their sheep and their goats behind them. These animals that are going to be sacrificed on the altar, just minutes away from sacrifice. And a crowd has gathered, and once again, Peter, the, the spirit-filled preacher, cannot help himself. There's a crowd in front of him, and he's got to talk about Jesus. And so he says to this crowd right there in the temple area, you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. So what was the foundation of Peter's faith? Where did he get his hope? Where did this boldness in Peter come from? Before he was afraid and ran for his life and denied that he even knew Jesus. Now he's walking around the temple boldly proclaiming the message of Jesus. The foundation of their faith was not something that they had read, not something that they had been told, not something that came from the scriptures. The foundation of their faith was what they had seen. It changed everything. So here's the question for all of us this morning. If you're a Christian... What should the foundation of your faith be? Where should our confidence be? Peter would say, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> that's the resurrection. Now, they're at the temple, and this is not really the best place to be preaching. Acts chapter 4, verse 1 says, the priests and the captain of the temple guard. Now, these are the guys that went out. These are the exact same guys that went out and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, the exact same group of men. And now they're going to come up. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 1. They come up on these guys. These are not strangers to the narrative of Jesus. They know the story. They know who these guys are. They've seen them before. This is familiar territory for them. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Remember we talked about them last, like, not last week? The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. And they're kind of like the Supreme Court. And so the Sadducees have been having their meeting, and they hear this, this, um, all this commotion outside the windows, and they, they get distracted. They see this crowd. They see this, 
this thing happening, this, there's some, you know, everything's bubbling up, and, and so they stop down, and they go outside, and they're like, oh my goodness, it's that Peter guy that was hanging out with Jesus. I mean, has he learned nothing? Are they seriously talking about Jesus? Come on! Like, they couldn't believe it. And here he is, he's back in the temple, and what's he doing? They came up to Peter and John, and while they were speaking to the people, verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. In other words, guys, shut up. We're just going to take you off the streets and put you in jail, just to shut you up. I mean, come on. Now, the very next day, John and Peter are brought before this group that had persuaded Pilate to crucify Jesus. Okay, these dudes don't mess around. Caiaphas was there. Caiaphas is the high priest. He's the one who worked out the deal with Judas to betray Jesus and gave him the 30 pieces of silver. That was Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the guy that leveraged his influence and his position and his leadership to lean in on Pilate and get Pilate to do his bidding for him and have Jesus killed. Caiaphas is a major, major player. Okay? He's got all kinds of juice. And now he has before him two Jesus followers, and they've been up at the temple healing people and preaching this resurrected Jesus. Everybody knows how this is going to end for Peter and John, and it is not going to end well. Acts chapter 4, verse 7. Then they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Now the problem for Caiaphas is that this lame dude walked in with Peter and John. And he knows who he is. He's walked by him too. And sometimes he's probably thrown him a couple of coins, and sometimes he's walked by him and acted like he didn't even see him. But he knows who this guy is. They all knew who he was. He shows up at the trial, and they're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. How are we going to get around this? Because here he is. I mean, we've been passing by this guy for years. And once again, Peter decides to speak up. He cannot help himself. Now just imagine that you had the ability to speak to the Supreme Court. Let's let's say that you had been accused and they were going to let you defend yourself. That would be intimidating. You're going to speak to Congress, right? Like you're going to come in and defend yourself to Congress. Imagine that you've been invited to address Congress but you haven't really had a chance to do your homework. In fact, it's worse than that. You've spent the night in jail. You've spent a lot of nights in jail, and, and you know, they're, they come and get you, and they say, come on, where, where are we going? Um, we're going to take you in, and you're going to address these people and, and basically plead for your life. Um, and they put you in front of this Congress, and, they, and you say, they say, what do you have to say for yourself? Not only that, but you're the least educated person in the room. In fact, I don't know this for sure. I don't know whether Peter could read or not, but it's possible that Peter couldn't even read. I don't know. What, I, I don't, don't know. But there were probably some writings on the wall, and one wonders if Peter could even read what was written on the walls. And he speaks up. And it's unbelievable, really. He, he's in front of people. That, he's about to address people he's never addressed before in his life. And the power in this room is unbelievable. And Peter, this is his big moment. Are you ready? Peter. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to this man who was lame, come on up here. Let him see. Come on, move your feet. Let him see. 
This is a guy that's been laying around forever. Look, he's on his feet now. If we are being called into account for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Woo! Peter, calm down, buddy. They're going to get you. But whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. When they saw the courage of Peter and John. Brett, what do you mean, saw the courage? Because Peter and John should have been the same way Jesus should have been when they arrested him, on his knees begging for mercy. That's what you did when they arrested you. You knew that the cross loomed in your future. You hit your knees and you begged for mercy that you did not go to the cross. That's what Peter and John should have been doing. These guys didn't have any power. They're from Galilee. They're fishermen. When they saw their courage, everybody in that room knew what happened to Jesus. And now these guys are speaking out on behalf of Jesus of Nazareth, and they are not afraid. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they're not afraid. These guys should be terrified. Why aren't these guys afraid? Here's why. Because when you lose your fear of death, all fear is gone. And they had seen him die and they had had breakfast with him on the beach after that. They had seen him ascend to the Father. What shall we fear? These men were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. Now, they can't punish him, because, I mean, the, the, the lame guy is standing right there. I mean, there's no denying something miraculous has happened. So the religious leaders say, look, don't just, we're going to let you go. Just stop doing this, okay? Stop preaching. Just stop. And Peter and John said, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we were taught as children. No, that's not what it says. As for us, we cannot speak about what we read about growing up in our Bibles. No. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The foundation of our faith is not a story. The foundation of our faith is an event. In fact, one chapter later, these guys are going to get arrested again by the same group of men. Same thing. And we're told that the religious leaders are just jealous. They are so jealous of these guys because they're drawing these huge crowds. Scripture says they got jealous. So they arrest them, they put them in jail. Miraculously, they, they are freed from jail. Now you would think, after you've been through everything Peter and John have been through, and they throw you in jail for a second time, and you get miraculously released, I'm taking that as a sign from God. Get out of Dodge, right? Like, get out of here. Not Peter and John. The next day, they catch Peter and John out in the middle of all the people, drawing a crowd, and Peter, once again, is preaching. Acts chapter 5, verse 26. The captain went out with his officers and brought the apostles. And brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. At this point, Peter and John are folk heroes. And the leaders are afraid if they arrest them, they're going to start an insurrection. They're afraid they're going to get rocks thrown at them. So they're like, well, you know, what do we, let's just ask them if they'll go with us. So they go up to Peter and John and say, hey, would you, 
would you please come with us? And Peter and John are like, okay, yeah, we'll go with you. And here they are again, standing in front of these same group of men, and this time they are threatened with death. And Peter says this, we must obey God rather than men. And now Peter can't help himself. Here he goes, revival time. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. We are witnesses of these things. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Now there's an old man in the religious leader's bunch. There's an old guy, old wise man, and he says, listen, no, 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 no. We don't want to kill them. If we kill them, we're going to make a bunch of martyrs. We don't want that. Let's just ignore this. This is going to go away. If you just ignore it, it'll go away, all right? Don't hurt these guys. Don't make martyrs out of them. That's the last thing you want to do. So they took his advice, kind of, sort of, but not completely. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, if you go to this church and you've heard me preach, you know I don't ever use that word that I don't stop and tell you what that is. Flogged. Cat of nine tails. Nine pieces of leather thong soaked in water with bone, fragments of bone, glass, and shards of metal and pottery glued to the end of it. They soaked it in water so that when it hit your skin, it would wrap around and they would pull and they would rip the skin off your body. They would, hit, they would drop your tunic, you would be stretched around a pole, they would slap you with that thing 39 times. And by the time you're done, your back is hamburger. That's what they did. These men would wear these scars for the rest of their life. Now in the first, second, third century, they did not have the ability we have today to get online and do a background check. They didn't have a Google in the first century. So they had their own kind of background check. You know what it was? Turn around, drop your tunic, let me see your back. And when when Peter and John dropped their tunic, what you would see were scars from where they got flogged. and and, And that was your record. People would look at you and say, oh, you've run afoul of the law. Oh, you've got a record. You've been arrested. You're a bad guy. There's a reason we shouldn't trust you. These scars were meant to be a symbol of shame. It meant that they had a record. Here was their response. Let me just ask you before I read this to you, how would you respond if you got beaten 39 times with wet pieces of leather with sharp things on the end? Listen to this. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah. Now listen, don't miss this. If you're a Christian, these are our people. This is us. This is why we are here. This is how Christianity has survived, not just the temple before it ever had to survive the Roman Empire. It had to survive its own temple. And there was no book. There was no Bible. There was something else. There was fearlessness. There was boldness. There was courage because Jesus had raised a man from the dead and when God raises a man from the dead, you take what he says seriously. And when you have met that man, you are fearless. The first century believers embraced what I want you to embrace. 
what I want your children to embrace, what I want your grandchildren to embrace, that I want them to embrace the standalone version of Christianity. I don't need a book to explain it to me. I don't need you to explain how the creation happened and get me to believe that, to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Christianity can stand on its own two nail-scarred resurrection feet. The foundation of your faith and mine is not a book, it is an event. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christians eventually created the Bible. That's the difference. And this is where we must stand in the new generation. And this is where we must stand in the, in the misinformation age. But if we were to say, Peter, what's the foundation of your faith? Where do you find your hope? Where do you get your courage? He wouldn't point to a Bible verse. He wouldn't get his Bible out and say, well, it says here. Peter would say, God raised his servant Jesus Christ from the dead, and he has promised salvation to all of mankind. Now, I know this is a long sermon. I know. We've made plans for that. We've kind of built the service so that I could do this. But I want to take one more crack before we go home. I want to try and convince you one, more, one other way. It won't take long. I'd like for you to use your imagination. Richard Dawkins is a, one of the new atheists. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. Sam Harris is a very persuasive podcaster, speaker, lecturer on college campuses. Both these guys were speakers. And again, they're not bad guys. They're not evil. They just have a different approach. They just have a different worldview than we do. And they think religion is the problem. So let's imagine a conversation between Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Peter. And I think that they would begin with their normal blistering critique of all things Old Testament. They would highlight God's genocidal directives to the ancient Jews to go into foreign lands and to destroy everything that was in their path, even the animals and even the small children. They would rail on the, religion, on the dangers of all religion and they would recount all of the atrocities that have been committed in the name of religion over the many centuries since the time of Christ and even beyond. And from Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, I think he might say something like this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. Sam Harris. It's time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than license religious people give one another to keep believing when reasons fail. Richard Dawkins. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. He'd say, of course the Bible's a mess, look at its background. Sam Harris. The fact that my continuous and public rejection of Christianity does not worry me in the least should suggest to you just how inadequate I think your reasons for being a Christian are. So before we hear from Peter, let me ask you a question. What do you do with that? 
What does your 19-year-old daughter do with that? What does your 21-year-old grandson do with that? No wonder people are leaving. No wonder people have their hand on the door. Not because of these books necessarily, but because of this kind of thinking that permeates our culture and is rife throughout the internet and it is one click away. And just ask yourself, are your kids on the computer? (laughs) Yeah. Listen. If the foundation of your faith is the absolutely true book of the Bible, good luck with that in the face of an onslaught like this. It may be enough for you. You may believe it, and you've always believed it, and that's not going to change, and you're not going to listen to these guys, and you're not going to turn on those videos and listen to what they have to say anyway. You don't want to hear any of that. But good luck with your kids, and good luck with your grandkids. But I've got some great news. The foundation of our faith is not some cleverly cobbled together group of manuscripts. The foundation of our faith I think this is how Peter might have responded to Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Fellas, I certainly am familiar with my own people's history, and I'm sure that the reason I've never questioned it is because how I was raised. But gentlemen, none of that, in fact, nothing that you have stated has anything to do with my decision to follow Jesus. Sam, you referenced the inadequacy of my reasoning. Let me explain my reasoning. Actually, I only have one. When my teacher was arrested, I ran. When they asked me if I knew who he was, I lied. When they crucified my Lord, when the Romans put him on the cross, he died. And in that moment, I was like the two of you. I had no faith. And I did not know what to believe. To use your word, I had no reason to believe because I had no idea what to believe. When the women burst into the room early that morning to tell us that the tomb was empty, I didn't assume a miracle. I'm no fool. Have you ever seen a crucifixion? Of course you haven't. No one survives crucifixion. I assumed, as all of us did, that someone had stolen the body of Jesus or that maybe the women had gone to the wrong tomb. But I was curious. So I went myself, and before long, I found myself running. And I'll admit, I was a little hopeful. But guys, as John and I stared into that empty cave, we didn't know what to think. Later, Mary Magdalene found us and said she'd, been, she'd seen the master alive. But I wouldn't allow myself to believe it. You have to understand, I had just spent three years of my life chasing after a, a wannabe Messiah, a false prophet. I wasn't going to spend another season of my life chasing ghosts. Besides that, I had a price on my head, and if I wasn't careful, I was going to be a ghost myself. So that night, as was our habit, the boys and me found a place outside of town, a little room where we could hunker down and hide away, lock the doors and be by ourselves and just kind of be together. 
And that's when he came. Nobody saw him walk in, and I swear to you, the doors were locked. But there he was, very much alive. Fellas, I, I can't really argue with anything you've said, but I would like to clarify one thing. My reason for believing isn't something that I've heard or read or had read to me. I believe what I believe because of what I saw. I watched him die. I know exactly where he was buried. But God raised him, and I saw him, and I saw him more than once. That's the reason. That's the only reason for my hope. And that's the reason for my hope. And I hope that's the reason for your hope. And next week, we will pick it up here. Now, we're going to end differently this morning. Um, we knew this was going to be a long sermon. You guys are looking at your watch like, gee, my knee. <laughs> we're almost done. I'm going to pray, and then we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to watch a video that has some really important announcements on it, and then um, I think Tracy dismisses you out of that video. So let's pray together. Father, I, one could listen to me preach this sermon and draw the conclusion that I don't think the Bible is very important, and that is not true. I'm so thankful for Scripture. Father, I've dedicated my life to teaching Scripture. And I'm not suggesting in any way that it's unimportant or shouldn't be used or that, it's, that you didn't give it to us. I'm not saying any of that or that it's not true. I'm simply trying to help everyone understand that that is not what our faith is built on. Our faith is built on the resurrection of Jesus. That's what gives us our hope and our courage and our faith. And so, Father, as we leave here today, would that hope, courage, and faith drive us to be different people for a world that watches us. And when they approach us and ask us, why are you the way you are? We might use a Bible verse, but Father, would the first words out of our mouth be, because of the resurrection. Father, I love these people. These are my friends, and I pray your richest blessing on them in the week to come. We give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.